I'm Jason Bailey-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Today's guest is Colleen Grennan. She is a gallery director and a curator, and she is a co-runner of the space Cleopatra's in Brooklyn. She is also one of the most genuinely warm and honest people in the arts industry that I think I've ever met. As soon as she walked into the studio, we had a wonderful conversation. And let you know, like a lot of the times on the show, I have a background area of history with the individuals when they come in here. It's not the case with Colleen. We just recently met. So to open up that conversation about issues of sexism in the art world, and not just sexism, but supporting a community and making sure that everyone has equal representation within that community. And it's something that Cleopatra's in Brooklyn is actively doing all the time. So when I asked her to be on the show, I wanted to directly address those issues. And I think we do a pretty good job of just openly talking about it between an artist and somebody on the other side of the table, the, the person in the gallery running the space, and where she sees issues of inequality. And as we get toward the end of the interview, we look at this and we sort of discuss maybe the issues aren't necessarily completely gender-related it's a class issue. And if the class issue is fixed, then maybe some of those gender issues or racial issues within the arts community, and we all see it, starting the discussion here or in other places helps to propel that into a bigger arena in a very small way that we can contribute here on the show. So without further ado, here's going. Colleen. Yes. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I wanted to start by saying briefly how we met. Mm-hmm. And it was through uh, Justine Curlin. Right. And she had a show here in Los Angeles at the gallery you currently work for. Yes. King Griffin Corcoran. Correct. And Justine's wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me. For those who don't know, you're in Los Angeles from New York. Correct. And you're currently working as a director at the gallery? Can yes. you explain what you're doing here? I guess I've been in L.A. for a little over a year now, maybe like a year and three months. Has it been that long? Yeah, I know. I still feel like, I still use the I'm new here. Oh, really? All the time. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. I think you're allowed to do that for the first like three years. <laughs> I guess, but isn't like living somewhere through, because I feel like I've technically only ever lived in most places for four years max and then... It looks like, I looking at yeah. just your history, you jump around a lot. I do, I know. My last move to LA, you know, I took a deep look inside myself. And what, what is it about transition? What is it about putting myself out there? You know, like When why, you came out here like yeah, a year ago? Yeah, why do I need to keep moving? Why can't I just stay in one place right before I left New York? Because when I left New York, I mean, sorry, I might go all over the place. Let's but do it. That's how I When I, I left New York, I wasn't done with it, if that makes sense. I wasn't like you, you weren't you were walking out the door and be like I'm finished. No, I, need to get out. I wasn't like take the key, lock it up. I don't have an adversity to the weather. You know, I I like oh, okay. the, I like the cold weather. I like the snow. In hindsight, looking back on it, I love you, New York, but I don't miss you. <laughs> I don't miss living there. I don't. So, what was the reason for leaving? It's like kind of a simple question. I mean, answer. My boyfriend is from here. When he moved to New York, 
you know, we had the discussion that we would eventually end up in LA and yeah. there are things out here that we want that we would never be able to get in New York. So you visited a lot when you were, yeah, you we, knew it well. Yeah, I knew it enough. And then there were things in like my job that, you know, kind of hitting a glass ceiling. So you, just to give reference point to people listening, sure, you yeah. worked at Andrew Kreps, Rachel mm-hmm. Uffner in New York. Mm-hmm. Where were you when you left? I was at Kreps. You were at Kreps. Yeah. Uh, and I love Kreps. <laughs> and I love Liz the most. I was at Kreps. There was a moment when, you know, I just didn't, I wouldn't look for another job in New York because it would just be more of the same. The same thing. Yeah. It would be like, oh, would you move now to Gladstone or would you move to Rosen? It's a, a and, lateral move into. Right. I mean, maybe, I mean, I was associate director was my title and maybe I'd get different responsibilities, but it would be just more of the same. And yeah. so I started having conversations with a few galleries out here in L.A. actually and the conversations that I had with um, King Griffin Corcoran felt very organic. And they actually kind of chiseled out a position for me with what I wanted to do. And so I'm kind of doing programming and artist liaison and, you know, curatorial endeavors at the gallery. And that's a really rare position. You get to do a bit of everything instead of just sales. Yeah. In fact, I'm not really even responsible for sales. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's like the perfect job. I know. (laughs) So I couldn't say no. And so when, you know, when that was offered to me, it was a little too soon. Every, so every August, my partner and I, we would assess our situation and we would say, is it time? Do we start looking for LA, you know, towards LA? And every August we would kind of say, no, it's, we're not ready yet. Cause there is, it's going to be never ending you know there's always a checklist and the way that I'm talking about it is and this is about our careers have we gotten to a plateau of our career where we feel comfortable because there is that idea that you need to be in New York to succeed succeed and to become part of the conversation and to be honest my experience in New York has been incredibly beneficial for my place out here in LA, you know, my knowledge, my network, I guess maybe the speed, maybe people from New York work at a different speed than people from LA. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's not even just the speed. It's just the accessibility, the networks and everything. Yeah. You're so much more isolated out here. You are in a very good way. (laughs) But if you don't take the time to go out and make sure that you are connected in different ways, and that includes not just LA, but in New York. And I, I make trips back to New York right. on a regular basis for every four to six months as at the very, I. you yeah. have to. Yeah. It's a support network as well. Right. I mean, the small things of working in Chelsea and being able to walk across the street and see five different shows. Yeah. It just doesn't exist out here. And say hi to five different gallery directors and then have them help you when you need a loan or yeah. small things like these. That's not small though. Yeah, it's not small That's huge. because it, it's been very helpful for me out here. To be able to call call in those favors. Well, know. and I think there's something about L.A. right now, too, where people are more willing, like those favors you can call on in New York, they're more willing to happen now sometimes when it's in L.A. and it's mm-hmm. outside of their own city. Mm-hmm. So that you have that access that you maybe didn't have on some of those connections. Right. Very much. Right. I, I noticed that. Yeah. That I will get return calls that I didn't get before when I was in New York. <laughs> right? You're yeah. like, oh, now you're answering. Oh, uh, yeah. I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know. It's not a big fish little pond. I don't know what it is. It's just different. It's just different. We all know. Um, I mean, we could talk about the differences between New York and LA. All day. All but it doesn't day. matter. It's this, yeah. It's the same socioeconomic class anywhere you go. Yeah. <laughs> You're always, it's always the same people. One of the main things I have always respected, one of the projects that you work on with, um, Three other women, mm-hmm. uh, Bridget Fenn, Bridget Donahue, and uh, Aaron Somerville. Mm-hmm. Cleopatra's Greenpoint. Yes. I would love for you to talk a little bit about what that gallery is about and why and how it sort of came about. Yeah, so Cleopatra's, technically it's not called Cleopatra's Greenpoint. It isn't? No, but I know I don't... Does know. everybody call it that? Uh, I think so, but it's just, it's just called Cleopatra's, but I think that I don't even know where they came from. Um I think we might have to call on one of the forefathers because I'm not one of them. So Cleopatra's was formed in 2008 by the three women you mentioned and another woman, Kate McNamara, who's incidentally out here in L.A. now, too. The story goes, and this is in print, you know, you can find this, but Bridget Finn was walking by this artist studio I'm going to tell the story all wrong, but, uh, they it, won't, they won't hate you for it. I'm <laughs> no, sure. they won't in Greenpoint and 110 Meserol. And there was an artist studio and this artist was moving out and she was, Oh my God, I gotta get this space. All four of these women, as I mentioned, were working in galleries at the time. Yeah. I think she phoned Bridget Donahue, who she didn't know very well. Oh really? Yeah. None of them knew each other very well. When they started the space, there was more. It's like what you were just talking about. Directors across the street. Yeah, you know somebody who might exactly be That's exactly what it was. Yeah. So she called Bridget and Bridget Donahue was, as she is, the best, says yes to everything. Yeah. That's when she was at Demilio Terras. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so, and Finn was at uh, Anton Kearns. Yeah. I think Aaron was working for Andrew Krebs. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Incestual. <laughs> and then, and Kate was the curator at PS1. And so uh, she phoned Bridget, Bridget phoned Kate, somebody phoned Aaron. Yeah. And then they all were like, yeah, let's do this. You know, let's sign a 10 year lease. I think because like they were talking, I mean, they all had like a communal conversation about not being able to do certain things in their jobs. And that is programming, you know, these, these are the things that we are interested in doing. And, you know, when you work in a gallery, you work with the same five to 30, yeah. so essentially artists and you kind of circle through those and providing yourself your own opportunities. Right. And so that's why they started it. And they had an opportunity of five to, or 10 year lease. And they, they took the they 10. Took the 10. <laughs> they were entrepreneurs. Yeah. And so we're nearing that 10 year mark. 2018. Yeah, exactly. Is and the it, gallery going to close in 2018? Yeah. It's done. Mm-hmm. That was just the way it, it always was. So then they were running programming. It was very much concentrated on events. Events happened all the time. They threw parties, fundraiser parties, or, you know, did video screenings. I mean, this is 2008, so things were a little bit more experimental, I suppose, I would at say the so. time. Well, and also that was a time uh, when the market was a bit down. Exactly. In fact, it was, yeah, that's when Rachel opened her gallery. She opened it the day after they announced Did the crash. Did you really? Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. And I graduated in 07. Yeah. So it was like, so now what? So you knew, yeah, you knew you, what was going on. Exactly. You're just sort of stuck. Right. And where was I in 2008? <laughs> Oh, I, I was in Ohio. 
Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what were you in Ohio for? Uh, I I was working at a gallery out there. I want to get into yeah. your, we'll go back let's into your history. Cleo's. Yeah, yeah, let's we'll finish Cleo's. So two years later, you know, they were running program. People were so excited. You know, they were doing programs all over the place. People were asking them to do everything. Yeah, they were hot. They were, yeah, and they were like really, I, I mean, we're all still very young, <laughs> but they were, you know, a little really bit. Really young. Yeah, and doing everything and that's awesome and i remember even looking at their website when i was in london but we'll get back to that uh but then kate left she got a job up north in boston and then a little bit after that erin left and moved to berlin and started cleopatra's berlin and then it was just the two bridgets running the space and incidentally, I'm the only one that visited Cleopatra's Berlin because I was in Berlin and I just went for an event there. Oh. And I met Erin, but we didn't meet. Cursory. Yeah. I emailed her to RSVP to the event and then she was like, oh, happy to, that you're here. And I remember thinking like, I don't know, I just remember being so infatuated or like, <laughs> not infatuated, that's just too strong of a word, but I was like. You weren't creepy? I was like, wow, this. <laughs> this chick is cool. Like she's running this space and doing events and like it did. I didn't it's like, I want to do that. Yeah. And yeah. then the universe somehow put me in touch with Bridget Donahue around 2011 by many different ways. I met her because my class went to New York. My, I did my MFA at Goldsmiths and curating. That's where you're in. And line. our class, yeah, exactly. And our class trip was to New York. And so <laughs> I was like, okay, I know New York, but let's go. Bridget gave us a tour of Gavin Brown and we knew similar people because who doesn't when you work in the art yeah. district. But the most coincidence is that Bridget Donahue's college roommate was my best friend's older brother in high school. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... Random. My friend Jason, his brother's Matt, said, you got to email Bridget Donahue when you graduate from school. You're going to get a job at Gavin Brown and everything's going to be okay for you. You're going to move back right. to New York. So I was in that panic stage yeah. of I'm about to... What the hell am I going to do? With a lot of student loans and <laughs> yeah. what am I going to do? So I emailed Bridget and she was like, oh, we're not hiring right now, but of course. come right, come over to Cleo's and let's just chat. So we started chatting and I was technically their intern. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I think I was like 29 years old or something like that. But I was really, I mean, that's just sort of my, I don't really say no. The show that was up was three shows by Lynn Cook, who is uh -huh. a fantastic curator, yeah. organized by an I meant to look this up. Uh, Montserrat, she's a great curator too. And she she curated the show of Lynn Cook's curated shows. And so that was like my first kind of... Um, By the uh, way, the program, that type of programming in an alternative space yeah. in Greenpoint is just amazing. Oh, I know. I was like totally in awe. I, you know, coming off of the boat of curating... You know, like I was like, wow, this is so amazing that you have access to this stuff. And and so I, I wrote a piece and I, I did an interview with Montserrat and 
I mean, they liked me. They liked me. And then, <laughs> but also they were shorthanded. So, <laughs> and they needed my rent money. So they asked me to join Cleo's. And so I gladly accepted. And so I've been doing Cleo's since 2011. I feel a part. You know, you are a part. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I am. There's, they keep taking your rent money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely do. One of the things I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. in, in reference to, to Cleopatra's. Sure. I had, and I shot you this note about this, mm-hmm. was a statement that Cleopatra's made in reference to an article that was written by uh, Mara Riley in Art News. Mm-hmm. And it was taking measure of sexism, facts, figures, and fixes. Right. The re- I want to read the the actual response Please from Cleopatra's do. because yeah. I thought it was articulate and it made a very specific point that I think is really important. The gallery Cleopatra said, hands down the biggest observation that we've made the role in the role of being four perfect targets for artists to approach pitch projects to ask a studio visit for, etc., is that probably nine out of 10 people to hit us up are men. We call them squeaky wheels. Squeaky wheels get the grease. More women artists need to approach venues and curators, pitch projects, ask for studio visits, etc., and become patrons of the types of spaces that they want to see exist. That have programming that includes them. They need to approach people who are already women and make sure to go to these shows and help promote those spaces. It's a reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. And it read as, it just rang true to me on so many levels. Of course, I am a middle-aged white male mm-hmm. and i said to you when desk, desk. yeah i know i know <laughs> shame shame but i said to you when you were coming in too i said i'm a squeaky wheel right i feel that way right because i do that and i do it often right but this is it's you want to talk about that a little bit yeah the squeaky wheel is if anybody knows bridget donahue that is you know kind yeah. of her colloquial you know she just speaks that way so she came up with that idea and it we had always talked about it but we never really uh, we thank you also um for appreciating that but and also thank you for giving us the opportunity to put that into words absolutely because we talk about it behind closed doors but having this you know a chance to assess what we're what happens you know with our space and I talked about this a bit. I had Justine Curlin on yeah. who we met through. And yeah. In Justine's interview, we talked about it a little bit as well, too. And I had said... It's systemic. It is. And yeah. I've asked multiple women to be on the show. I've asked the same amount of women as I have men to be mm-hmm. on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I've got more no's from the women's side. Oh, interesting. Than I have from the men's side. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the men are... They're just totally for it all the time type thing. Yeah. And there's a, there's a yes. sense of yes yeah. to anything. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense of sort of not trepidation, but just sort of pulling back and seeing whether or not they should or should not. And I don't want to be... I know. I have a... I I don't want to generalize. It's not... Yeah, of course, it's very dangerous to do that. The numbers are there, though, you know. This article was really... The the, the Maura Riley article with the numbers and everything in it, too. Yeah, 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 exactly. Supremely interesting and very, very... Right. Disheartening to see that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's improved, but still the improvement is from 1% to 14%. Right. And then, of course, the whole, you know, resurgence of older women artists, you know, the trend of that happening, you know, kind of born was born from that too, but it's all just market and... Well, and I had written down some notes out of the, out of that article that just sort of hit it for me. Yeah. 
where the gaps are are not only it's opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Curators finding or putting women in a position to actually be shown mm-hmm. first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But then it comes into to play with auction results. There's a price differential in those auction results. Yes. So that plays into what galleries are going to do as far as showing as well, too, because it's a business. Right. They're, they're paying the rent. But you look at pay gaps and equal pay in institutions as well at the same time, and it is a very real thing. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. I don't want to talk too much about Hillary, but... No, it's, but no, I, <laughs> but, you it know, is a great example. I don't want to take it for granted that, you know, whether you support her or not, I don't want to take it for granted that it is incredible to see a woman take the podium and accept the nomination for the presidential candidate. You know, and the same goes, I had this moment, and these are things that we maybe do take for granted when, for me, try to live my life as a Democrat progressive, you know, far, far left, uh, and just assume that everybody else thinks the same way as me. But there was this moment when a friend of mine's kid was making a gingerbread house of the White House for 4th of July and kept saying, this is Obama's house, you know. I was had this moment and I thought, wow, like he's talking about like an African-American president, right. four years old, and he's that's who he sees. You it's going to make a difference. Yeah, like a black man can have that position. And this was so like, yes. Like, My kid's... The image. Chant Obama. It's so rad. When they see him on t- TV. Yeah, and there's something yeah. so amazing about that. Yeah. And the same for, they, you know. They did it for Hillary during yeah, the convention, the too. We were watching. Hillary. They were Hillary, Hillary. And the kids in the crowd, and they showed these images of brace-faced young girls yeah. crying. And that was it's pretty, pretty amazing. amazing. And so. A lot of times we focus on what the problem is without giving solutions to it as right. well. And the article gave a few solutions to this, but also Cleopatra's is doing something about it at the same time. Right. Well, I mean, so our mission was never to be, you know, we were really pigeonholed. Early depictions and early interviews of the four of us, pre-Kate, post-Kate, you know, me involved, yeah. because it's always been four women, yeah. has always been this girl power, which is disgusting. <laughs> term because we're women and you know and then also like this like slumber party or this so we're trying to push this like feminist movement but it's just who it's part of who we are you know this feminist movement is just part of the way that our struggle and what we experience and so the mission for Cleopatra's is always and has always been giving an opportunity to people to artists, yeah. to creatives, whatever, across the board, and always trying to just champion the person that In is under-recognized. Like some galleries, you know that that's the painting gallery, <laughs> the pretty right. painting gallery, or that's the uh, conceptual Eastern European gallery. You know, like there's a... Uh, yes, there's a bent to it. Yeah, but with Cleopatra's, because we're not a commercial space, you can't really identify what we're most interested in because it it shifts. You don't have an agenda. Yeah, you know, what medium or what type of artist or what ideas. So it's just always been trying to show these artists that don't have opportunities. And we have had artists that, you know, are commercial galleries. Bigger artists, yeah. yeah. like we, Jessica Stockholder, but it was works from hers from the 80s, these drawings. And also she's amazing. She's amazing yeah she's great 
So in 2015, we did kind of buckle down and we did a whole year dedicated solo women artist shows. So every show was a solo female show, not a group of female painters or, you know, something very generic. My Um, gallery here in L.A. just did that. Oh, the whole Anna Egby, the whole last year was all women. Oh, wow. I didn't notice. I don't think very many people did. Well, but we didn't announce it. Either did or not. Yeah. It's just, it was sort of when we were making our programming list, we started to notice that we were talking about uh, women, female artists. And then it just sort of kind of happened. And then the break from that was Michelle Adair's Cleopatra film, 2016. Oh. So that was the first like male. This is important for me to say too. Yes. I've, because I don't want it to be, well, how should I phrase this? It is not just about pushing women forward mm-hmm. and showing, it's like what you said, you're showing work that needs to be shown and underrepresented artists and putting together a program that's diverse and exposes people to new work. Right. I can say from my own personal experience, though, I've known uh, Bridget Donahue for a while. Mm-hmm. We're both from Iowa and we met through like a random studio visit she was doing with my studio mate like way back in I think 2007, 2008. Yeah. So I think it was before Cleopatra's or right right during the beginning. And she has been one of the nicest people. I would send her email updates. I mean, I'm cautious about how often I send updates out. But if I'd send an update once or twice a year about something that was going on, and it could have been the most minimal thing at sort of a junk space looking back on it, right? Yeah. She would always get back to me. Mm-hmm. And say congratulations at the very least. When she was at Dominio Taras, when she was at Gavin Brown, she's always taken the time to do that. So she is supportive of all artists. Yeah. And takes the time more than anyone else. I've, I, in fact, well, after- that's why she's so, I mean, successful and beloved. I mean, it's a she's a breath of fresh air in this. In this she's smart thing. and she's just <laughs> genuinely nice and yeah. gives a shit about artists. Yeah, she gave. Little me a shot. Yeah, it's great. So <laughs> that being said, I just didn't want it to be like it's all about pushing women. It's no. not. It's about supporting a community. It is. And making sure everyone has equal representation within that community. That's exactly what we want to do. And I carry that over into my professional sphere too. You know, uh, maybe it's not as evidential, but, you know, that is my thinking process. And, you know, who is underrepresented and and why and you know I'm not trying to be the discoverer. You're not pushing an agenda. I'm not trying to be the like I need to go out to the middle of nowhere <laughs> and find that great artist. I find that I mean it's important because every you know there are great things everywhere. We're not just in yeah. New York or in L.A. Well, this might be this would be a good jumping point then for your history. Mm-hmm. Ohio and and where you came <laughs> yeah. from. So you went to Goldsmiths. Yes. What were you doing in Berlin? Mm, nothing. <laughs> really? What were you? Why were you there? Oh, uh, I mean, it, I was finishing my thesis. Okay, so, so we can cut out the nothing. Yeah. When I, when I edit the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just say it in CV form. I yeah, yeah. You know, went to undergrad at Roger Williams University. Went there because I knew I wanted to study art in high school, but I was intimidated. I didn't, you know, while my art teacher was like pushing me and saying, why aren't you putting a portfolio together? It was so intimidating for me to put together a portfolio and apply to something based off of these. I didn't know what art 
meant and I felt that I wasn't in what way what do you mean you didn't know what it meant in high school I didn't know that there was conceptualism you know yeah no I to me what art was when I was in high school was representate representing the thing that was sitting in front of you on the table right and I don't I wasn't able to do the perfect shadows or draw hands you know and so you know I just was too intimidated and I didn't have I I don't want to blame anybody. Maybe if I had a little bit more encouragement, (laughs) I would have. But so I went to Roger Williams. I started studying um, psychology and anthropology and eventually made my way to their art department. And and there was one great, and I started taking photography and there was one great teacher there. And I'm sorry, sir, I forget your name. But he taught at (laughs) RISD and he said, you need to leave this school and you need to apply what to are you RISD. Doing here? Yeah, he's like, you're just as good as my students over there. And he was really encouraging. Do you think he like took the time, any good artist he was trying to send out of the school? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was like blown away. I was like, oh my gosh, you spoke to me like the way somebody at RISD, like, you know, we all knew what RISD was, but I had a scholarship to this school, so I couldn't. I was paying the bills. Yeah, so I couldn't leave and get, you know, something from RISD, and, but I like certainly befriended a lot of people from there and used their resources and uh, that kind of like spearheaded it. I then went to like Florence and went to Studio Art Center International. So you traveled? Yeah, when I was in college with my best friend, Jackie, who is the director at The Box. Oh. She's my best friend since we were 13 in high school. That is so random. Well. I mean, it's random. I guess not. <laughs> but like the fact that you're both here in LA working in galleries. Yeah, well. That's that, cool. It's super cool. Yeah. So that's part of also one of the reasons why I moved out here. We're going to cut this, but. We're not going to cut this. We <laughs> we both met boys. She married hers. I moved to Ohio for mine. <laughs> and that's why you started working at a gallery in Ohio. And there was one gallery there. And I started working there. And I mean, I had so many odd jobs after school. I really searched for my identity really hard. You know, I was. So this was your first gallery experience. Yeah, that was my first gallery experience. How long did it last? I, oof, five years. Oh, that's a long time. I know because. I were just, you in Cleveland or where were you? No, I was in Columbus. Jeez. And I had a lot. It was me and the gallery owner and she was a year older than me. Were you showing? We were showing like local artists, like young kids. But I like started to reach out to a lot of like San Francisco artists because like, you know, this was 2005, 2006, as I said. And everything was blown up. People getting picked up out of grad school. Yeah, exactly. It was like super grad school. Like that that stopped as soon as I got as soon as I got to grad school that quit. Yeah. Like 2005. Everyone went to grad school. I was talking about this the other day. Like, remember New American Painters? The, like, magazine, like, the grad school kind of, like. That was you flip through and find somebody and, like, pull them. That's what I did, you know? I mean, I was, like, 20, how old was I? I don't know. Maybe I was 25, 26, something like that. So. Making shows. But at the time, this is what is most important. Okay. That. Helen Molesworth was the curator at the Wexler Center at the time that I was in Columbus and I saw some of her shows and they were incredible and you know part object part part sculpture I saw the Louise Lawler and this was my education I think that this was the most pivotal point of my education in fact and maybe it's too gushing 
to say, but you know, she was my hero. Expo- <laughs> but it exposed you to, well, first, it exposed uh, me to something that I didn't have because my, you had no idea. No, my arts education was really self-taught and picking up the art forum and go, going through cover to cover, freeze cover to cover. That was, you know, trying to understand the language. It was all just me doing yeah. this kind of isolated. You know, it was really like going to Helen's talks, you know, Andre Frazier and Louise Lawler and her speaking on a panel, seeing Carrie James Marshall. All of these artists, you know, really like strong, but having conversation, political agendas, yeah. you know, and I was like, that's what I want to do. I, be, I was so curious. So I would go to all of the like I went to the New Orleans Biennial. I would go to the Carnegie, you know, I would make sure to go to the Whitney every year. So you were making an effort. To yeah, get out there. definitely. Yeah. I was really, really wanted to have these conversations. And so that's when I applied to Goldsmiths curating program because I needed a mentor in my mind. You needed to have a one-on-one conversation with somebody instead of just listening to somebody lecture. Right, right. Maybe we talked about this earlier. The jumping around is just that I'm just trying to get... Well, you're putting yourself in a place of opportunity and Mm -hmm. providing those opportunities for yourself. Right. I mean, I think anybody in the arts who doesn't do that is not successful. It's one of those professions where you... Well, any profession for that sake... Any profession for that sake is if you don't put yourself out there and work really hard to get it. Right. It, it's never going to happen. Right. It's just perfecting a skill. <laughs> how, so how long were you in, what's Goldsmiths? Two or three years? Uh, two. Okay. So two years in Goldsmiths. Then you finished your dissertation. Well, while I was in Goldsmiths, I did take, a, I was still in school, but you didn't because the way that the program was run was uh, the second year was that you only met once every month or something like that or or not even that yeah and so i was able to go to aachen and work at a kunstverein where is that in germany okay uh (laughs) (laughs) i am a german (laughs) my non-german not understanding noah aachner kunstverein and you know i did a brief internship there with dorothea yendrick she was the previous curator at uh, Porticus. Yeah. And then she started running, was a curator at, uh, Portic- Porticus has some amazing programs. Yeah, they did. And, you know, they still do. McCarthy was just there right. last year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a great institution. So that's sort of, you know, my eagerness. I mean, I want to, f- I feel a little more honest and sincere that it was just about experience. It's just, you know, I wanted to know what's it like to be in a Kunstrein? Like, what is it like to have a board and to run a program this way? Versus, you know, my only experience was like this gallery in Ohio, which was like, uh, you know, very similar to like maybe working for a smaller gallery in New York where, you know, the other employee does everything. Yeah, you're just surviving. Everything. <laughs> and so, you know, my first job in... When I finished school, really, really broke, really broke, and <laughs> moved back home with my mom in New Jersey. You're from New Jersey. Yeah, and I was actually, when I took my internship at Cleo's, I was commuting two really? hours. <laughs> Where were you in Jersey? I'm from Northwest, like really north. And you were living there and commuted in? Yeah, I would drive the, take, borrow my dad's car. How many or, days a week? I think two. Wow. And then I started working for Rachel and I was was still commuting because I was trying to find a place to live and 
pretty that's, like but that's dedication bootstraps. yeah <laughs> and that's a you know i think that's why i get along with women at cleopatra's we're all really bootstraps working hard yeah we're all we all work really hard and we have some privilege of course but and you're not coming from no. trust funds Mm-mm. and no yeah. no <laughs> very yeah. far from that out of that you eventually moved into new york city and yes. you started working at rachel Uffner. Mm-hmm. and then rachel you spent some time there yes <laughs> and then Cleopatra's and then Los Angeles. I want to get you, I want to know the sort of. Well, I worked, then I moved to Chelsea and I worked for Andrew Krebs. You worked for Krebs. Yeah. Okay. So. For a number of years. Yeah. Since you're in Los Angeles now, how are you working with Cleopatra's and how does that okay. relationship so continue? Right. I feel very sheepish to admit that the thing that I can't do for Cleo's, which is really what we all needed the most is. Uh, physical time and presence yeah so when I was living in New York you know doing Cleo's and this is what these women do all the time is sometimes didn't even have a day off you know sometimes seven days a week yeah sometimes I had to take double shifts because somebody was at an art fair and I wasn't going to that art fair or somebody you know had to go to visit an artist whose show is opening in Portland, you know, just right. as an example, because we do everything ourselves, you know, so we, we pay the rent from our day jobs. We obviously do all the programming. We write the press releases. We do all of that like admin. And, but then the biggest thing is really just taking hours and installing, deinstalling and cleaning. <laughs> so right. I can't do the, so you take on other responsibilities. To yeah, cover. I mean, yeah. do all the website. I do all. I've pretty much written all the press releases, unless the artist has written them. Since I started working there, I like to do that thing. It's all. It's just. It's yeah. a. It's a. It's a shuffle to figure out just making it work. And yeah. you have a group of people that you just need. Everybody figures out how to get it done. It sounds right. like you're very communal in that way. Yeah, I mean, I wake up every morning and I have minimum. 10 text messages really <laughs> maximum <laughs> sometimes it's like 28 because of the three hour difference we are in constant constant contact so if this is ending in 2018 mm-hmm. how far are you guys programmed out through the rest of the time we are programmed out through the end of this year and then we have a few shows for the following year so for 2017 right so we don't know yet what we're going to be doing with 2018. Maybe it's like a best of, maybe yeah. we do something. There's this project that we did a really long time ago, which never came into full fruition. And it was one of my favorite projects. It was called SOS self-organized spaces. And we got a grant with the help of someone from Vox Populi. What's that? It's a nonprofit in Philadelphia. They invited us to take part in this project. And so we were given a stipend of funds to travel. So we went to Detroit. We went to Philadelphia. We went to Pittsburgh. We did Brooklyn. And we interviewed all these kind of self-organized spaces, meaning not all of them can be described as artist-run because... The, what we discovered is really that we're kind of the rarest of the kind because we're not artists run. That's true. Pop-up spaces are usually mm-hmm. run by the artists who are sort of feel disenfranchised. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is what we came up with. You were the curators who felt disenfranchised. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, exactly. So that 
the path to creating a documentary, which never happened in the end. You know, we have hours and hours of footage that just needs to be edited and put into some kind of format. Maybe we finish that for 2018 as like our kind of... Amazing. That would yeah, be I know. That's my dream. This is something, <laughs> now that we bring this up, this is something that's interesting to me as well, is as an artist, we sit and we look at curators and we look at like gallery directors and we're always thinking, oh, those SOBs. Yeah. Like, why are they not curating me in a show? Right. Or where is my opportunity? Right. But on the other side of that, and what I think a lot of artists don't understand is that there are a lot of, the pay for curators is crap. Oh, crap. Yeah. Absolutely horrible. Well, uh, yeah. And unless these people in general, just being on the other side of the aisle of artists are really dedicated. It's, it's a hard life. I think something that maybe we could talk about more in depth, but maybe we just talk by example right now is that the problem, the number one problem is not gender, it's class. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, if we solve our class problem, then our gender problem will fall into place. Our race problem will fall into place. But how do we do that when... I don't know. And <laughs> part, of the, part of the structure that is built within the art world itself, too, and this is the greater, this is not just the art world, it's everything. It's general. everything. It's all, it's all but walks of life. But because it's everything, it's, it's part of it's a, so this ingrained. too. Yeah. As an artist, I see this happen regularly where the opportunity is provided to those individuals who already have this class structure and the connections to already do the things who have the money to go to all the events to not have a full-time job to be in the studio full-time right to you know make sure that they're at the biennial opening so um how does that function as far as a curator or a gallery director when the class what's the differences between those people that do have a that is it being able to be present i can say that i feel a lack of a better word, a victim sometimes of the class system, not because of a woman, but it does happen that there have been a few instances where I have been replaced by a younger male who comes from a wealthier background. Institutionally and or what? In my job positions, yeah. I've found that, you know, these people will be brought in. In a gallery structure, I've seen this happen often where somebody who is a patron of the gallery has a child. Yes. And that child needs a job. Yes. So that child comes in and works the front desk for all of about six months. And then all of a sudden they're associate director. Or and year. I don't want to demonize every. It doesn't happen that way all the buddy time. No, that, no, no, no. That does come from money. I don't want to demonize them. I don't want to demonize the young boys Absolutely that not. need an internship, you know? No, no, no. no. <laughs> but. Um, and it's the same with artists. It is the same with artists. I have, I have some very, very good friends that come from money. Mm -hmm. and, and they're some of my best friends. And it doesn't make them any less of an, an artist or a good artist in that in right. that way. But it does provide opportunity that you otherwise wouldn't it, have. It does, yeah. And that's something too, you know, having the ability to be full-time in your studio is a luxury. Being able to run Cleopatra's is a luxury. The fact that we have some disposable funds to do this, you know, pr this uh, project is, is privilege. And that should not no, you know, that should not be not, not the other, recognized. The other thing, though, with that is that it's not just a single person or two people running that. That's four people. Right. It's the a same thing. And we're thing. not a nonprofit. You are. I wondered about that. Yeah. We, maybe I'll make a little pitch. Yeah, please pitch it. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone's listening, please donate your books. <laughs> we run this other thing called Cleo's Books. So we have a bookshelf in the front of our space. And these are all donated books. 
mostly by the galleries that we've worked for before. <laughs> and um, the original idea was that it was just going to be artist monographs. Um, and then a few kind of like compilations or, you know, catalogs worked their way in because due to the donations that we were receiving. Availability. Yeah, we weren't going to say no to something. That helps us fund the space sometimes in, in very small amounts, but anything helps. So right. we just did a book fair, Babs. It's a Bushwick that was organized by Blonde Art Books. And, you know, we made like a little bit of money and it helped us pay our rent this month. So, you know, Bridget Donahue, who runs her own gallery, right. <laughs> doesn't have to take money out of her pocket or... You know, all, you know, Aaron, who's a curator at the White Columns, you know, talking about curating salaries, you know, like it. Small. It, yeah. Yeah. So it helps us. Yeah. Working at a nonprofit as a curator. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the majority of the job while it was programming is trying to find money. <laughs> Where were we? We were. You could throw that pitch in somewhere. Yeah. No, we were talking <laughs> about that opportunity and the class structure and how the class structure sort of denotes where you are in in breaking down those boundaries. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's no easy answer for any of it, right? There is no easy answer. I don't know. I mean, I've seen it happen too, where there's really great people in a gallery, but because they come from a different place and they don't have the right, they have a weird accent or, yeah. you know, they dress, they don't have the money to buy the cool clothes from yeah. Creatures of Comfort. They, <laughs> you know, they get pushed to the admin positions instead of the people on the floor or the sales. And because where they're selling luxury, you've got to represent We're selling luxury. So you have to look luxury. Of course it's that's, that's maybe, it's a real thing. That is a real thing. So maybe it is difficult to beat that class system. I don't know, but I've had this really great conversation with a friend of mine and we wondered, is it possible just to like run a space to make enough money to first and foremost, pay your rent, second, pay your artist, and then third, be able to pay your own rent at yeah. home or your car bills. You know, like, is it possible to do that? And I read this article recently in the New York Times about the value of loving what you do, which is really where my brain is at right. most of the time right now is, and there's a flip side to loving what you do, but um, the the bottom line of this article is saying like, Maybe the goal, maybe the way to do it is just to accept less money. So maybe that's what curators do. Maybe that's I what think the, artists do. Well, I mean, that's what we're already doing. And I think the same thing is if I could just be in a position where I could sell my work, quit my day job and survive. But the problem then becomes you're so limited in, well, I have children, right? Right. I pay $1,200 a month in, in healthcare. Uh, sure. So where does that $1,200 a month and if it doesn't... Or daycare or whatnot. Or day, and yeah. that doesn't include daycare. Yeah. So what happens, it's hard to be month to month mm -hmm. when you have to provide a stable income. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes the same. And I think this is what's interesting and what we're both getting. It's the same for curators and gallerists as it is for artists. Right. And it's important to sort of realize that when you're going into it. I think it's important for artists to realize that when they're going into galleries and, and looking at, even if they have representation... It is a business and they have to pay the bills. It is a business, yeah. So to understand that you're you're in this together and you're sort of counterparts in working and to make this happen is really important for people to to recognize. Right. Yeah. I mean mutual respect, I guess. I, I would think so, right? Yeah. We you, always you would hope. 
artists always feel disenfranchised. And they I think do. the key here is that we just realize we're all <laughs> on the same page. Yeah. For the most part. Not always. Yeah. <laughs> it's not all rosy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we're working together. We're working for one another. You know, I believe in you. You have to believe in me too, kind of a thing. You have to believe that I'm, I have your best interest at heart or in my mind or in Otherwise it's not gonna work my anyway. business plan. <laughs> what? Okay. So we're coming to the end here, but yeah. I want to see you're in LA for the long haul then. I think so. Yeah. I don't have any plans to leave. <laughs> There's, I've got three more years before my four year mark hits, but no, I'm very oh, right. Ha- because that's yeah, where you jump every four years. Yeah. No, I'm very happy here. It's really a nice living out here. Um, I have, Many more opportunities than I had before. All thanks to all the things that I've done and, you know, thanks to the people who've carried me here. And all of your hard work. Thanks, yeah. Right? I think so. Yeah, I think so too. (laughs) The only thing that ever would ever pull me back is just my family on the East Coast. I love them, but, you know, I got to do me. (laughs) (laughs) Colleen, thank you so much for coming and speaking. Yeah, it's very been a pleasure. Yeah. (laughs) 